You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The military has confirmed that just before a defense contract's downtown offices was raided by the FBI, the company Dawson had secured a contract for the Red Hill Underground Fuel Storage Facility. A Navy official told HPR that a contract to maintain the Red Hill fire suppression system with the company Kinetics ended June 30th. According to a statement provided to HPR prior to that contract expiring, the military approached Dawson to provide services to maintain and repair its fire suppression system at the underground facility under a sole source contract. It was that week that federal investigators raided down uh, Dawson's downtown offices. The news of the Dawson contractor surprised Deputy Director for Environmental Health Kathleen Ho, who said she wants to understand the scope of the award. It's not clear if it involves AFFF, the aqueous film-forming foam that was discharged at Red Hill. This morning, we talked to a lawmaker who represents the area, State Representative Sonny Gannardin, who has been an outspoken critic of the handling of the Red Hill spills, uh, not just the fuel, but also the AFFF, which contains chemicals that don't break down easily. My concerns are that this might be a hiccup or a slowdown in the continuing defueling of the Red Hill Fuels facility. We are taking a tour on the 27th, and so I'll be sure to ask the Joint Task Force. Keep in mind that the Joint Task Force has different duties from the Navy. The Navy is going to be tasked with doing the continuing cleanup of the environment. And so it's my concern that after we get done with all of these various issues regarding defueling, that we actually start to remediate the ground and the ocean, which is going to be a long process. The issue of the fire suppression system came up after that spill uh, that Kinetics was in charge of maintaining and repairing. We're not real clear on how much of the AFFF system will be in use when they start defueling. I know Admiral John Wade has indicated that, you know, they would like to go away from that just because of the hazards of those forever chemicals. It's important to know that there is going to be different duties for different organization organizations. The Joint Task Force is in charge of the continuing defueling of Red Hill. And so this question is going to be specific to them and to Rear Admiral Wade. I'm hoping that this doesn't slow down their process and their timeline that they have shared with the community and with the legislature. I guess we're looking for some reassurances that it's still going as planned. Absolutely. And it's a little frustrating knowing that the Department of Defense and the Navy said that there was no problem, that this was an absolutely safe facility just two and a half years ago when we first had this spill. And now we have to do massive amounts of training and massive amounts of investing to essentially get this place safe and fit in order to continue the defueling. So this is going to require continuing oversight of our Department of Health with the support of our legislature. With this recent raid on the Dawson Group offices downtown, you know, we're not real sure what the feds are looking into, you know, whether it's tied in with the, you know, grand jury probe that's also been underway uh, with the Navy officials. But yeah, any other thoughts about that? Uh, Speaking as an attorney and as a representative who uh, has seen corruption up close, it's not my role to comment on these things before there's an official complaint filed or before the feds have completed their investigations. And we just hope that whatever is uncovered is limited and doesn't extend wildly throughout government, really. Uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen until they file something and they don't file something. 
one of the issues that the legislature tried to bring up with Rear Admiral Wade was the lack of oversight at the Red Hill facility over the last several decades. The ways that one hand didn't know what the other was doing, which led to a series of mistakes and a series of failures that ended up poisoning our community. So we're hoping that the team that has been brought together to continue the defueling is continuing oversight and is ensuring that all these different processes, which are happening at the same time, you know, digging wells, defueling, unpacking pipes, fixing lines, all of these different uh, processes are being coordinated appropriately. That's a big concern. Okay. And then the tour that you folks are about to take uh, at the end of the month, I mean, was that initiated uh, by the House? Yes. Yes, by uh, Water and Land Chair Linda Ichiyama. Okay. And and you're going to be looking at what specifically on this tour? Do you know? Um, We're going to be looking at the kinds of processes that are happening. A lot of construction is happening at Red Hill. There are a lot of machines and bodies moving around in that facility right now and, and and we hope that it's all safe and appropriate and there's multiple levels of checks going on to ensure that there's not an accident. Yeah. One of the things that the Department of Defense was very proud of was that this facility can operate with gravity mm-hmm. so you can defuel this system just by opening the spigot at Pearl Harbor Hickam. Of course that doesn't really comply with any of the laws or regulations that we have in the 21st century. However, you know, um, hopefully there are redundancies built into the system from the past and from the work of the Red Hill Joint Task Force. Task Force, yeah, yeah. And that was Representative Sonny Gannardin, who represents the Pearl Harbor area, talking with us about an upcoming tour to follow up on the repairs being made to the Red Hill facility. This morning, we also heard from Wayne Tanaka from the Sierra Club of Hawaii, who expressed similar concerns about what impact, if any, the federal probe might have on the defueling process, uh, which is set to begin in the fall. This just, you know, raises, I think, a number of important questions. You know, to what extent, you know, does this federal investigation, you know, involve any Dawson staff or, or operations that may relate to Red Hill? You know, and I guess, and more importantly is, you know, how could this impact the defueling timeline? Or, or other anticipated work uh, relating to defueling and decommissioning the facility. You know, and if so, you know, can the contract be voided or, or modified? And is there an alternative contractor out there um, that can do this, this kind of work? We understand that they may have hired some of the kinetics workers. So, you know, we're just trying to get a better handle on what this means. Yes, and, and hopefully, you know, the Joint Task Force Commander, you know, John Wade, said you know, at the very beginning that transparency was not you know, not only critical to the mission, but it was the mission. Um, I think he was relaying that from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. And so, you know, maybe this could be an opportunity, at least on their end, uh, to reaffirm that commitment and, and to be as transparent as possible, which, you know, unfortunately has not always been the case um, in the last year, year, year or so. And we do understand that if this is a, you know, federal probe with the FBI, I mean, with the federal investigators, you know, there are firewalls, so it's not real clear as to what they know and what they can share with the public. Yes, yeah, so that, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I do think that, though, that there's general uh, information, in, including with regards to, you know, contract scope and at, at least what potential alternative options there could be for moving forward um, if, if it does turn out that, you know, this federal investigation may, may be impeding um, the plans for defueling Red Hill. We know that when the AFFF system the foam system, firefighting foam system, leaked. That really raised some questions about whether things were buttoned down at that facility. 
Admiral Wade has mentioned that they're, you know, moving away from the AFFF system. So it's still unclear as to what, you know, Dawson is in charge of. If the AFFF is still in the pipes, you know, how does that work? Yes. You know, you know our understanding is that you know, they have committed to not using, uh, you know, AFFF that's based on, on PFAS, but uh, or science use, I think, sodium bicarbonate um, as fire suppression control. You know, I'd like to understand is what the scope of the Dawson contract was, and 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 how critical it is to the you know, the, to the fueling operations, especially the timing of, of those operations. Any concern about just picking up the Kinetics employees? Absolutely. I mean, you know, this you know, there was a pretty damning report talking about you know the the misuse of uh, you know particular valve, the the you know, failure to ensure that the system wouldn't discharge all of the HFLF concentrate when they're testing it. And so, it, you know, that just raises questions about how seriously Kinetics was taking its responsibility uh, in operating the system that, you know, again, it, it poses an existential risk to our, to our water supply, to our island. Anything else at, at this juncture? I mean, I know we don't have all the facts. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, the Joint Task Force, the Department of Defense can be as candid as possible, uh, can honor their commitment uh, to transparency, which, you know, again, unfortunately, you know, hasn't always been the case, with, you know, with this most recent PFAS bill. The other two PFAS bills that we know about, but have, you know, very little information on. And overall, I think this really emphasizes the importance, too, of paying attention, uh, not just to what the Joint Task Force tells us, uh, which is important, also what they may not be telling us. That's top of mind. You know, this, it's, it's already been, you know, over a year and a half since the big spill in 2021. And, you know, every day that this fuel is in this facility is, again, it's like a sword hanging over our head. That was the Sierra Club's Wayne Tanaka talking about the latest developments and uh, at Red Hill, uh, including a federal probe that our partners at Civil Beat uh, broke last month. Uh, we did hear back from the Dawson Group just before uh, going on the air, according to a statement from Stephen Lee, company spokesperson. Protecting our VI and our INA is important to the Dawson Ohana, and we are honored to have been selected by the U.S. Navy to fulfill the requirements of this contract. We would like to assure the public that the investigation is not focused on the Dawson operating companies and does not impact our ability to continue to provide the world-class service to any of our existing or future Department of Defense and other federal clients while we continue to cooperate with the investigation. The search warrant was served at the Honolulu offices of the Hawaiian Native Corporation, uh, Inc., on June 27th to obtain financial information, and the offices uh, reopened for business the next day. Uh, the Joint Task Force says that the defueling at Red Hill remains on schedule for October, which is just three months from now. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Mm-hmm. 
Today we pull out our vintage maps and wander through Kaka'ako, which has gone through vast changes in the past few decades. The section of Honolulu was once home to many small automotive businesses, including a classic Chevy specialist, Auto Diagnostics. Over time, some of these businesses relocated to make room for new buildings and high-rises, while others required certain areas of their buildings to be reconfigured to accommodate the changes. Today, we're thinking about one building in particular. It was built in 1989 and has a Kapilani Boulevard address. Its construction caused one street to drop off the map altogether and another to be shortened. Our backyard quiz for today, what's the name of the building? And for extra credit, what are the names of the two roads fully or partially consolidated in the building's footprint? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right uh, wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Love me or leave me and let me be lonely. You won't believe me, but I love you only. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else. Well, you might find a time, the right time for kissing, but now time is my time for just reminiscing. Driving through Waikiki last week, something caught my eye. A two-story storefront at the corner of Lures and Kalakaua was all dressed up. It was covered with signs for the Dior designer fashion store with a white facade of dresses on mannequins. The building was wrapped on two sides. So I called the City Department of Planning and Permitting to inquire if this was legal. Hawaii has some of the toughest anti-billboard laws. On Friday, DPP sent a response. It had apparently received other inquiries, and an inspector issued a notice of violation on July 6 to remove the Dior logos and the sign that advertised a temporary store down the street. But the NOV stopped short of ordering the removal of the canvas of clothing on display from ear to ear of the building. A spokesman for the city said Dior has until this Thursday to make the changes. That prompted us to call the Outdoor Circle, which said it hoped the city would reconsider and take a closer look at the situation. Winston Welch, executive director, believes that it's a billboard and that the dressmaker's mannequins, which are linked to the company's previous advertising and exhibits, go against the spirit of Hawaii's strict billboard laws. We met Welch in Waikiki to take a better look at the facade. So we're down here at the corner of Kalakaua and Lures, and there is a two-story building that is wrapped, and it's the future location of Dior. Right, yeah, and as you look at it, it looks like a giant billboard for Dior that wraps around the corner, and it's got Dior stamped all over it and a lot of their, their products here. So the, uh, the Department of Planning and Permitting issued a, uh, a notice of violation for them, and uh, so they've got to comport with that. So talk about our anti-billboard laws here. What is the whole point of them, and why do we need them? 
Well, you know, the Outdoor Circle's been around since 1912, and it, people know us primarily for trees and signs, of, you know, issues of livability and sustainability. But first off, it started with signage, and there were billboards, if you can imagine, all over Punchbowl and Diamond Head on the road to Waikiki, advertising everything from whiskey to cigarettes to, to soap and, you know, diapers. So some uh, civic-minded ladies got together and shut down the, uh, the billboard companies over a period of years and then enacted some of the nation's strictest signage laws so that we can enjoy Hawaii's natural and scenic beauty. And that's really what the, the crux of an, an issue like this is when something appears to be a billboard, that it gets the public's attention and they they care about the view. People in Hawaii know that we have a beautiful environment and so they call the Outdoor Circle or they call you know, the various counties for enforcement to keep our, our island uh, beautiful. Well, I think that's what happened in this case. I mean, I saw it driving by the other week and when I called the city, they were checking into it. And then I was told, lo and behold, well, somebody else had complained earlier and the they sent an inspector out and they did issue this notice of violation. But I was told a correction is simply just to take out the Dior sign and visit us at our other location. And so the the rest of the building, which is wrapped in what looks like mannequins, <laughs> stays, apparently. Well, you know, it, it seems that it's designed to promote a product or a service in a way that doesn't comport with our signage laws. So it may be that a DPP come, needs to come and look at this one again and uh, maybe make another determination. But yeah, you know, I think what it's more emblematic of is because we're down here in Waikiki, which, uh, you know, by and large, most merchants, they understand that we have strict signage laws and they comport with that. But we've seen, uh, especially in, you know, the last year or two, a proliferation of illegal signage, waving banners, uh, uh, extra signage between trees, uh, all types of, of manner of signage. And, you know, we really rely on the public to call up their local county enforcement agencies. And those are listed at the Outdoor Circle's website at outdoorcircle.org because we really do need everybody to say, hey, you know what? We want to preserve our really beautiful environment here and the city needs help. They just don't have enough people to be eyes and ears on the ground. And I think once business owners know that, oh, that this sign is illegal here, they want to take them down because they understand that it's part and parcel of being a good uh, business here in Hawaii. Uh, so, you know, if you notice it, you can say, hey, you know, your your sign here is it's it's not just ugly, but it can also be. I mean, it's designed to be distracting for motorists, and we know that that has really tragic consequences a lot of the time, but um, just on the, the surface visual level, uh, we gain a lot when we remove uh, this, these illegal signs uh, around the, uh, the whole state. Well, we're here at this particular corner. You know, there's Louis Vuitton the other way, Tiffany and Company over here to the right. And so, yeah, you want to be a good neighbor. You want to be respectful of the laws wherever you're at. Yeah, and that's right. We People want to be respectful of the laws because basically, if I've got my signage up and I have three waving banners, then, you know, the lady down the street is going to want her four, four banners for her. And so the reason why we have these signage laws is to create a level playing field. At the same time, it keeps our islands beautiful. So, you know, I say, folks, we need everybody's help here to uh, just keep, you know, keep our, our islands looking beautiful. So, you know, you mentioned that the outdoor circle turned... 100. Given the history of the outdoor circle, I don't know, what's on the horizon? What is it that concerns your members at this point? Well, you know, it's uh, interesting because this is an organization that is 
exclusively committed to the beauty of the islands. This is a, an amazing organization, and we welcome new members all the time. When you have an organization that's old, obviously, uh, you know, the founders are no longer here, but just like those, those adages that say, you know, who planted the tree that's never going to be able to sit under it, that's the folks that are involved in the outdoor circle. And I think it's most of the people in the state, they say, you know, I want to leave, uh, I want to be part of keeping the state beautiful. And this is one vehicle to do that uh, through is, uh, you know, becoming a member and becoming a member of one of our branches as well. I think that as we progress down the road here, we're seeing that uh, climate change is real and that we're the, the hottest days that we're experiencing right now are going to be the coolest days that we're experiencing in the future. Now, that may not be exactly where we live, uh, depending on where you live, but the general trend seems to be that way. And we know that it's a lot cooler sitting under the shade of a tree than not. So Outdoor Circle's future is continuing on with, you know, helping to keep our uh, islands clean, green and beautiful with, uh, you know, helping businesses understand our signage laws and, and those challenges that, that are perennial. And then also understanding that we just need to plant a lot more trees in the right place uh, with the right care um, in perpetuity. You know, here in Waikiki, uh, during the pandemic, so many businesses shut down. We saw a lot of storefronts boarded up. In some neighborhoods, there's been proliferation of graffiti over those, you know, I would barriers, you know, so I, I don't know. I know that's another another issue, I think, you know, just the, the growing tagging that's going on. Yeah, the tagging is, you know, particularly egregious. And I, I walked by somebody, somebody had spray painted a tree and I thought, who in their right mind would do that? Uh, it's bad enough on the electrical boxes and the poles. So, you know, it's, I think it's just a symptomatic of some folks that are, that are hurting that would take out <laughs> their frustrations like that. But yes, these are exactly things. And I think we need to come back together just like we always have as communities, whether it's, uh, you know, organizing your local neighborhood for a cleanup or a paint out, uh, you know, whether it's the Elks or the Kiwanis or the Boy Scouts or uh, the, the, the Outdoor Circle. We all need to come back together and invest back into our community and say, this is us. This is where we live. And what kind of community do we want it to look like? I think we absolutely have it within our power. And it's just a matter of re-engaging ourselves um, now that we're, I guess we're kind of coming out of COVID or how it, how it has been these last few years. So let's all get back together. Let's reinvest in our communities, in our neighborhoods. This is where we live. And so uh, if, if we don't do it, who's gonna do it? You know, what struck me also, I just wanted to say is during the pandemic, people were trapped in their houses, right? We didn't go anywhere. And I noticed walking the dog on the street suddenly beginning in COVID, the streets were packed with people walking around. And then the parks had restrictions, but you could still go to the park. You could go as an individual or in a small group. The parks and our beaches, these were our only respite places. And that just, I think many of us had the, um, the thought that we are lucky we live in Hawaii, where we have these amazing shade trees and parks that were planted decades, even a century ago. and. Uh, you know, again, we just need to keep it up. So just malama where you live. Malama where you live. Malama yourself, malama your, your neighborhood, malama our city, our state, and our world. Well, Winston Welsh, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
That was Winston Welch, executive director of the Outdoor Circle, talking about a Christian Dior storefront in Waikiki that some consider a billboard and who think it should not be allowed. The city has issued a notice of violation. Weigh in on the issue. Think it's a billboard? More than a billboard? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beat takes us to the Big Island for our reality check. Reporter Paula Dobbin has a story about growing pains in Waikoloa. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So uh, I was up there in Waikoloa Village recently, and it's a, a lovely neighborhood, but uh, essentially the, the folks that there think that the, the county needs to step up and provide more services. Yes, um, it's a fast-growing part of the island. Uh, there's multiple housing developments going in um, or in the pipeline, and um, it's it's basically a case of growing pains. Uh, you know, there's only one road that goes in or out of the village. Um, there's the main intersection there doesn't have any traffic lights. Um, the parks have been really neglected um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, there's no high school. There's no library. So. You know, it's just the community's just at a point where they feel like they really need the county to step up and um, invest in infrastructure and um, accommodate the growing needs of this community. And they recently met with uh, Mayor Mitch Roth and his cabinet? Yes. um, Mayor Roth and his cabinet held a town hall meeting here on uh, June 27th. Uh, for about two hours, um, they talked with residents about you know the various um, problems that have arisen, and you know made some promises about things that will be done. Um, you know, one of the major things is that the county's park budget has really blossomed um, in this new budget that went into effect July 1st. So there is more, a lot more money now to maintain parks. Um, you know, they did point out that there's over 300 county parks um, on the island and the budget now is I think 3.9 million it had only been um, I think 300 and something so they they did get an enormous amount of money this year to to do some of this work Um, but you know one resident pointed out that with that amount of money and over 300 parks that amounts to about $12,000 per park so that's still not really a lot um, but there is one group here in particular in Waikolo that's been very active in terms of raising money uh, private sector money to uh, get playground equipment and um, they did get a whole bunch of playground equipment but unfortunately it's sitting in a shipping container it has been for months because um, you know the county says that the, the surfacing area of the playground and the overall design needs to be compliant with the ADA and so the county has to sign off on that and so you know, it's just been a lot of back and forth but um, as a result of this town hall the other night um, the parks and rec director did come out and he met with these um, you know volunteers in the community and, and it seems like things are, are now on track to kind of get that playground equipment installed after the design and engineering plan gets approved by the county and hopefully within a year that that playground will be functional so some progress being and made. there was a survey I think of the uh, the residents right and one of the issues that came up is the traffic um, uh, situation, right? There, there's a proposal for a roundabout. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, there's one, you know, because there's only one road in or out of the community, uh, that one intersection of Paniolo Avenue with uh, Waikoloa Beach Road is during rush hour can get like really, really congested because there's traffic coming in all these different directions and there's no traffic lights. So people just have to stop and wait and kind of guess who goes next. And, you know, it's definitely a horrendous intersection. Um, and the county wants to put a roundabout in there, which, you know, is a big involved project and, you know, they'll have to do environmental studies and it's, it's costly and all that. Um, and the, the residents have been saying for years, like, just give us a traffic light, just give us a traffic light. <laughs> you know, and that came up during the town hall uh, the other night. And, you know, the county still says that a roundabout is the best option because this area is going to continue to grow in population. And ultimately, you do need a roundabout. So um, it looks like that's what's going to happen. Um, I think the planning or the public works director said that in 12 to 18 months it might go out to bid or something like that and there's going to be more community meetings between now and then but it does seem like they're they're intent on putting the roundabout in and there are new housing projects that are being proposed for that area um yeah not just proposed i mean one just opened um i think last week it's like an affordable housing complex um there's at least one or if not two other affordable housing complexes going in and then there's um, another big, big subdivision um, that's down where the skateboard park is, where Paniolo Avenue ends. It's, there's multiple houses going in there. I think um, 78 or something in the first phase, and then each year there's going to be like 200 more houses. So you know, it's there is going to be a lot of lot of growth here, and so I think the the concerns of the residents are are valid. I mean, you know, you, you do need more than one road in or out, especially because this area is really fire, is prone to wildfires as well as flash flooding. So, you know, with all these new people gonna be moving in here, it does seem like, you know, another road out of here would be um, advisable. All right, well, something to watch, but thank you so much, Paula. Yeah, thank you, Catherine, take care. All right, that was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. Next time on The World, there are thousands of shrines and temples in Japan maintained by carpenters who join stone and wood without nails or screws. But these artisans are aging, and there's a push to train younger people in their craft. We visit workshops in Japan where traditional skills are kept alive on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Working from home does give you a lot of flexibility, unless your work from home actually means secretly working from a beach in Mexico. I'm at the co-working space, and I get a call from my manager where are you? I'm Kyle Rizdal to tell your boss or not to tell your boss. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered.
finding a new landfill site is one of those issues that just doesn't seem to get resolved. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden takes a step back to look at the progress here on Oahu and on Kauai. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So it's been about seven months since the city and county of Honolulu was supposed to have selected a new landfill site. So last December, instead of announcing a new site, officials said they would be seeking a two-year extension on the deadline. This is before the city's planning commission now, and a contested case hearing is set for August 9th. Roger Bobcock is the director of the city's environmental services department. He explains why it's taken so long to get in front of the planning commission. So they processed the application, uh, then they had to give uh, notice, um, public notice, and we had to go to um, neighborhood boards in the area as part of that. And then they accepted public comments for a period of 30 to 60 days and stuff. So, yeah, it does does take some time for, for all that to happen. And then after that was closed, then they had their their meeting, but then at their meeting, um, there was folks who wanted to um, to intervene, uh, and so then it becomes a, a contested case hearing, and they they schedule that for for August. And currently, the city is using the Waimanalo Gold Sanitary Landfill off Farrington Highway in Kapolei, and it's set to close in 2028. Efforts to find a new site have been ongoing since 2011, and the most recent efforts resulted in zero viable sites. In the past, the city hadn't considered federal lands for use, but now Babcock says the city is in talks with the military on potential sites. In the prior um, evaluations, all of them essentially, well, at least for sure the most recent one, and I believe some of the earlier ones too, uh, federal lands were excluded from consideration because of um, because it's it's uh, it's a lo- very long process, you know, to work with federal government potentially uh, to to sites and especially military sites that you know the military has current needs and sometimes you know future needs that are um, you know not necessarily well defined. It's a challenge for them to to give up lands, right? That they might need for training or other things, or or, or various other uses. Um, however, but now where we're at is we really don't have um, other <laughs> any other options. So we are talking with them and hopeful that we can work something out. And we should probably point out that you know there were a list of sites, but mm-hmm. that uh, you know the lawmakers changed the rules, and there was concern about siting a lot of these landfills over or too close to our aquifer. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the Board of Water Supply back in 2021, after the Red Hill water crisis, uh, Chief Ernie Lau came out and kind of explained to people where the aquifers were and the drinking water was, and. That really put to the forefront um, for the city and county to kind of take back, take a look back and, you know, really cut out a lot of the different sites that they were previously considering. Right. So they're in a, a bit of a pickle right now. <laughs> Absolutely. And and it's also happening on Koi, where with Act 73, they had an initial site, um, but they had to kind of relook at everything. And now they're looking at a site in Keikaha. But um, on Kauai, the they are currently using the Keikaha landfill, which will hit capacity in October 2026. The county is awaiting permits from the State Department of Health for a vertical expansion, which will extend that um, landfill's lifetime to October 2029. 
Allison Fraley is the County of Kauai's Solid Waste Division's Environmental Services Manager. She says they're at the beginning stages of a new um, landfill siting process, and this uh, this site is on state ag lands, also in Kekaha. We um, identified that site, and now we're working with the consultant to do this preliminary environmental in investigation. The first thing would be an initial site report where they're working with different agencies and groups that would have input on the site and um, just summarizing the site use, like the zoning and the site constraints and impacts on the ecosystem and um, landfill life disposal capacity. I mean, it's a huge list of things that need to be assessed before we move forward, we'd be doing, you know, a, concept, a conceptual site development plan, which would um, talk about things like how the site's access, how we operate the facility, what the leachate management system's like, what the liner system's like, what the sur how the surface water works. There's a lot of, you know, landfill, you just think, oh, it's a big place where you put your trash, but there's, there's a lot to it as far as how it's engineered. And Fraley says it takes about a decade to construct a new landfill. So the county of Kauai is bracing for a period without a public landfill. And in the meantime, they're working on the vertical expansion as well as putting a liner over phase one of the Kekaha landfill. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, we're islands. We don't have a lot of land. We don't have many mm -hmm. options. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Of course. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden. You can uh, read her stories uh, and contact her if you have a story idea. Go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. This morning, we reminded you of a couple of Kaka'ako streets that fully or partially disappeared to make way for a high-rise built in 1989. At that time, many of the businesses in the area were small automotive specialists, and we gave you one as a hint, auto diagnostics. It specialized in classic Chevy repair and maintenance and relocated to allow the construction of Pacific Park Plaza, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Last year, the glass tower located at 711 Kapiolani Boulevard sold for more than $57 million. The other parts of the answer, the roads involved the reconfiguration were Marmion Lane and Emily Street. Marmion was completely built over and only exists in history books, but part of Emily Street still remains while the rest was consolidated into the blueprint of the building. Uh, and that's the quiz for today uh, with thanks to a longtime listener who now takes his 57 Chevy to a different location. We had no winners today. If you have a quiz that you'd like to share, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> They look like me, they call me with similar tongues that hook my cheek. Several steps of firm foothold with the foot lightly. Stephen Dettelbach is the current head of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. 
One of the things I get a little nervous about is that somehow that people will come to accept it, that this level of gun violence in the United States of America is kind of who we are as Americans, part of our culture. It is not. But can ATF itself be doing more? We'll sit down with the man tapped with enforcing the country's gun laws. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov. On the next Fresh Air, you'll get a chance to get to know our new co-host, Tanya Mosley. You may already know her work from when she was a host of NPR's Here and Now, from her podcast, Truth Be Told, and from her Fresh Air interviews. I'm going to talk with her about her work and her life. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. It's back. The Prince Lot Hula Festival marks its 46th year, and for decades it was held at Monolua Gardens, which has let to, uh, yet to reopen to crowds since the COVID shutdown. But post-pandemic, there is a new venue for the festival at Skygate on the grounds of Honolulu Hale. We talked to Kumuhula Michael Pilipang about the event happening this Saturday. We do have a theme. It's called Olakahula Hula, which means hula lives to hula people. So it's kind of a nice way to celebrate all participants of hula that come to the festival this year. So I'm really excited to come back live after what three years of filming one hula. You know, we get to present a 20 minute section. This year I'm bringing, I'm merging two groups together, three groups together actually, to celebrate these people who contribute to hula. I'm using my old group from Waimea on the big island when I was running Mahalo there. So they're coming in to help me chant and be part of the voices on stage. And then my group in Honolulu and then my group from Japan. So all three groups are going to merge into this festival. I'm kind of excited about that. Well, we have been waiting for the return of our Japanese friends. You know, we know when you folks were at the Monolulu Gardens, that was always a particular favorite venue for our Japanese visitors. But we're going to be at Skygate. Hopefully, you know, folks come down to be able to see how Hula is celebrated. You know, it's it's really tough because the, I know for my Japanese people in just Japan in, in general, while everybody's going to Japan because the yen is so low, you know, American dollars are so strong, the reverse, when they have to come here, they're spending a lot of money, you know, on their side because their Japanese yen is so low. So, you know, I'm helping them out. They're all going to stay all staying in Waimea at my house in Waimea. So they have no, they don't have to pay for hotels for a week before they come to Honolulu to do the performance. And then from the performance, they'll just leave back to Japan. You know, it's great. We have 14 halals performing this year, one from Maui and one from Kona on the island of Hawaii. The Kona girl who's performing is actually my student and her own, she has her own halal. So I'm excited to have them come come in also. And yet we have some wonderful returnees like Lemomi Maldonado, Lemomi Hall, of course, Vicky Hall Takamini. She's been there for all 46 years. And of course, and then, you know, Uluvehi Guerrero is coming in from Maui. So we're really excited to have all these people come in to celebrate Ula 
And what's beautiful about it is it's, there, there, there's a wide range of hula genealogies, different people from different hula schools coming in to celebrate and dance and share. And it being a non-competitive festival, they're allowed to bring everybody with them, you know, from their children to their kupunas. And that's what's so cool is to see, see those kind of shows that we don't usually get to see anymore, you know, that kind of presentations. And so I'm really excited because I also started in the gardens dancing before there even was a, in Moanalua Gardens, even before there was a stage, we used to just dance on the grass, you know? And then from the grass, we went to flatbed trucks. And then from flatbed <laughs> trucks, they finally built that hula mound. And then, you know, so now moving into these venues, you know, it's a pros and cons switching over. We missed the, the gardens, but in the same token, we have more people coming because parking is more available in town bus transits, people see it. It's not in the garden in the middle. You have to, you know, away from the freeway. This is right in the middle of town at Skygate. We're excited to have people coming in uh, from all over to see it. I just remember when I first saw the Prince Lot Hula Festival there at the gardens, and I was just so enthralled. And it was just so nice because, you know, like you said, it's not a competition, and it was just so welcoming. And, you know, I imagine that, you know, you dancing as a student, as a haumana, right? And then now as a kumu, just to see, you know, how infectious it is. It is really a wonderful feeling and i don't know how to explain it you know it's like you're stepping into your childhood into the past and yet you're right there in in the immediate time you know with everybody and when i'm on stage i love to look to the audience i don't just look at my dancers i'm looking in the audience and all these wonderful people that are looking back at me and you know some of them you see every year that we're so grateful for them and yet we see these people who like you said, are so enthralled just by hula, by being in the company of other people that are sitting around them, enjoying themselves. You know, it, it's a lot different than a Olaulea where, you know, people are squeezed into Waikiki along the beat, along the Kalakaua Avenue. It's a festival that brings family together. It's a festival that brings halal together, you know, and it brings community get together. And I think that's what I love about this Prince Lot Festival so much. And there are going to be activities where people can learn about feather lay and all the implements that are showcased during the, yes, the melee we, and we the will have, dance. We will have a bunch of food booths. We're going to have crafters. And then we have the Hananoyao tents uh, where people are going to be, they can pound poi. They can pound uh, taro to make their own poi. They'll have feather lay demonstrations, lay demonstrations, instrument making, Hawaiian war instruments all kinds of cultural experiences that people can learn and do things inside the tents. So we're really excited about that. You know, we, we try to let people see that hula isn't just the dance itself. Hula is, the, to me, it's, hula is like the, the poster child for Hawaiian culture. In, embedded in the hula is all the arts, Sadele making the language, the chanting, the costuming. And from the costumings, you have the dyes, you have the kappas. You know, everything is involved in that. And now that we can add food to it, oh, it's even better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that it has been hard during the pandemic, you know, going virtual. It's different. This year, it's going to be a hybrid event, right? So the dances will be taped and there'll be a presentation on television as well. Yes. It's a challenge for us dancers this year because we have to, you know, even though we recorded it before, we had to get a, a mechanical license for one hula. Now we have to get a mechanical license for the 10 hulas. 
So, you know, those were little challenges that each of us had to face, pulling things together. I think it'll be wonderful in the sense that we're finally getting these hula performances documented. You know, not just for this hybrid, but in the sense it's going to be documented. And, you know, I think of like the pictures of Kalakaua coronation and all those dances with black and white. And you imagine 100 years from now when people are watching these video clips you know, to see what hula looks like, you know. And even us that go back to the 70s and the 50s, you know, to look at those video clips of our hula families that are dancing, it, it keeps hula alive, you know. And use, to be able to use this kind of technology to share hula around the world, that's really something, you know. And what our ancestors, our kapunas ever thought of seeing something like this, I don't, I, I doubt. But in the same token, you know, when our kapunas used to tell us, if you're going to share hula, you need to share it with 100%. And, you know, this is what's happening. We're being able to share it at 100%. Talk about Prince Lot, King Kamehameha V. Did I get that right? Well, <laughs> yes, Kamehameha V. You know, in, interestingly, you know, he's the older brother of Kamehameha IV. <laughs> it's just that he, four, number four, Alexander Lihuliu was adopted by the queen and so when the next heir was supposed to come in, Liho Liho got chosen before the brother, older brother Lot. Anyway, Lot Kamehameha, you know, the reason why they named it after him, this festival, was that he lived in Moanalua Valley in this area, this Ahupua area. And the valley itself was noted for a hula practitioners, kahunas, people of that type of arts. And so he learned from these people, you know, and while we often give Kalakaua credit for keep bringing the arts back in hula. It was Lot Kamehameha that actually tried to establish cultural presence within his administration and within his kingdom, you know, to, to, to use, to look at the culture, the La'au La'au practices as daily use and daily life. So us honoring Lot is really a, a nice thing to do it kind of links the. It, of course, it links the valley to the foundation, um, Moanalua Garden Foundation, and and the goals of education, enriching environmental studies, and a base edu, programs that Moanalua Gardens Foundation works on, and having Prince Lot Festival and Prince Prince Lot's goals of reviving the arts and keeping the arts alive is really wonderful. It's a good. It's a good match. And that was Michael Peely Panning talking with us about this year's Prince Lot Hula Festival, which will be held this year in a new venue on the grounds of Honolulu Hale at Skygate. It's on Saturday, 9 to 4, so mark your calendars. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we check back in on Skyline, our newest rail system. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about Uriel. 
call our talkback line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org you can also find the conversation podcast on spotify apple or anywhere else you tune in i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation Thank you.